You're listening to Adam Air MDG, the Underground Cartoon Therapy. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the uh, episode eight, season one. <laughs> All the way back to April 13th, 2020. We just had Chuck Rosansky on the uh, Huffing Old Comic Book episode. If you haven't heard that, go back and listen to that. And then listen to this for a treat. Meanwhile, Ace Freely. God damn, son. Probably one of the best leads he ever did on a studio album. Woo! Saw these guys at the Mile High Denver. My buddy Tony from the 5280 feet of Tony. <laughs> Go back and listen to that episode. He said Kiss is not the last band to play at the Mile High Stadium. But it was the last show I ever saw at the Mile High Stadium. Anyway, this show breaks down Superman, Batman, Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park, and Chuck Rosansky in a not-so-flattering fucking pre-interview, <laughs> which doesn't have an interview in it. It's just about me being a dick. Alright guys, listen to this motherfucker and let's have the fucking trip down Amnesia Lane. Alright. Smoke up, motherfucker. Welcome back to Underground Cartoon Therapy. This is the fucking hero episode. I don't know what we're going to do, but I'm fucking stoned enough. You're the hero. We're going to take on bad guys that fucking suck. You're amazing, man. We're a little team. Me as the teacher who can still do it. You as the student who can do it just not as good. I'm proud of us. Is there something you want to say to me? <laughs> All right, man. Clench up. Let's fucking do this shit. We'll be right back, guys. We now return. Hey guys, thanks for joining me on another episode of Cartoon Therapy that is Underground. <laughs> Today's episode is uh, 
brought to you by the last of my little um, strain of Alaskan Thunderfuck, which I'm smoking right now. Hold on. Yeah, that's some pretty good shit. I wanted to talk about superheroes and shit like that. I got another episode coming up with a friend of mine named Chris Cooley. And he's a comic book enthusiast. And we're going to go over some shit too then. But uh, I wanted to go ahead and just do one now, you know. And um, I learned a lot from these guys that were uh, just enriched, man, with comic book nerdery. I've learned a lot over the years. And, you know, I got a specific way of telling stories and shit. And, um... So I was going to go ahead and just tell you some of the stories that I've learned and how I learned them and what I want to talk about it like that, you know, or whatever the fuck I'm trying to say, all baked here. I'm going to start with Superman. If you don't mind. <laughs> so let's cue the music, all right? first time I ever heard these bars I was like what the fuck <laughs> can you believe a motherfucker can fly huh <laughs> So, okay, what do I know about Superman? I know he was created by two 17-year-old kids in Cleveland. Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster. Um, it really came from a, something that, that had been created before they came up with the actual idea for Superman. It was called Reign of the Supermen. That came out in 1931. They kind of took it made it into one guy. And you gotta remember, these guys were like Jewish kids living in Cleveland. And basically, the one kid was getting abused at home. I'm not gonna go personal. But the one was getting bullied and, uh, and abused at home. Plus, it was a hot time because Hitler was killing Jewish people in World War II. You had this shit coming over the radio. And it was really pumping up a lot of the Jewish community in America. They were getting heated up on this shit. Uh, these kids decided to go ahead and do this thing. I heard that they had put 17 submissions together before they actually got picked up by Sheldon Meyer, who was doing Sugar and Spike at, at D.C., and he was the one that gave him the green light and was like, all right, let's give the kids a break. <laughs> it was cool, man. Superman, when he originally came out, he didn't have the powers that he has now. He wasn't as strong, but he was all about the underdog. And he had a different psychology. And in a way, that kind of supplemented for the way that he's got powers now, which he really doesn't do anything but destroy shit. The way Zack Snyder has him on Man of Steel, which is horrible. The guy fucking decimates fucking a million and a half people. 
just fighting one guy who he ends up snapping his fucking neck anyway. That's not Superman, you know what I mean? Like, Superman, in his original form, is a guy that actually cares. He really is something that's personable. And his identity as Clark Kent is, is purposeful. <laughs> to only wear a pair of glasses and hide yourself is pretty great. <laughs> I like what they were talking about now. They revealed who Superman is, you know. Superman goes ahead and tells Perry at the Daily Planet, Hey, I'm Superman. He's like, oh, no shit. That was cool that they kind of did that, you know, whatever. But his usage is outdone, man. The beginning of him in 1938 and what happened to him later on at the end of World War II, he was really just this guy who was a racist and beating up Germans and Japanese. And the way the artist drew them was pretty bad, just so they could sell U.S. war bonds. Anyway, uh, Neil Adams ended up getting uh, Joel Schuster $25,000 a year annually after the movie came out. It made DC pay for it. And that's the story of Superman. Uh-oh. We'll be right the fuck back. Great story. An old wizard teaching kids tricks with cigarettes. Mm, cigarettes. Is that Billy West? <laughs> Watch me, kids. One puff and they'll soon be in my grasp. If it's a puff you want... Disguise, kids, the harm cigarettes do to you. That's why I never say yes to a cigarette. But always yes to 420. We now return. Which brings us to the next dick, fucking Batman. Because, you know, he just kind of follows right the fuck along, right? So let's cue the fucking music on that one, and I'll tell you some Batman shit. Hold the fuck on. All right. <laughs> the Gotham Overture. All right. <laughs> Bill Finger was really the guy who put the life into Batman. And um, Bob Kane was the guy who ripped off the idea for Batman. Ripped it off of, from a movie called The Bat, which was a guy who wrote, wore a bat head... <laughs> it was kind of a crime fighter vigilante in a weird, like some silent movie deal. Whatever. You know the story, kind of. Anyway. Batman has had, obviously, many changes over the years. But by the time uh, EC Comics was out in um, the 50s or whatever... And uh, they were taking uh, William M. Gaines Sr. to court. <laughs> and uh, they were getting sued, you know, for all this prolific material that was happening, man. And, uh, of course, 
EC went under as not really having any kind of defense against the seduction of the Innocent campaign, which was out to destroy comic books. So only a handful of fucking comic book characters got to really hang out after the comics code was appropriated. And Batman got to stay around, but they had to change the eyes on his ass, you know? And they had to flip up side down the, his eyes so he could stick around. He had to become this happy, kind of neutered version of himself. His original version of himself was this guy who shot every bad guy he came across. And in the first 40 episodes of Batman, in the original comic, he carried a fucking gun, and he killed everybody that he came across, you know? But uh, I guess the, the story on the side that you don't really get to hear so much is that Bill Finger and Bob Kane were playing a game of poker one night. And Bob Kane picked up the Joker card out of the deck and said, Hey, that's me. And Bill Finger was already, like, on it. And so he just drew the Joker the way that he looked on the playing card. And if you look at those early, uh, the way it's drawn or whatever, you can see it looks like the Joker from the playing card. And so basically that's what it is. So when you go back and you look, unless you know who the guy was in the medieval ages that drew that fucking particular Joker image, there is no origin of the Joker. Because, you know, basically, they went ahead and wrote him into the story. You may know the story. He was the Red Hood, and Batman gets cocky, throws him into the vat of fucking chemicals that's at the bottom and of the apex or whatever the fuck chemical uh, vat that they make playing cards out of, ironically. <laughs> and when the Joker comes out, <laughs> he's got green hair, he's white with red lips and blah, blah, blah. There's been a lot of renditions over the years, but the original one was that he fell into the vat of chemicals and it drove him crazy. They kind of use that in the Jack Nicholson one, Tim Burton does. But, uh, you know, Batman stays like this kind of guy who kills everybody until issue 40, I guess. I guess I think that's what issue it is. Whatever. It doesn't really matter. But what matters is all these people were responding back to Finger and Kane and telling them, hey, you know, we want the Joker to come back. So the Joker makes his reappearance. Bob Kane had a philosophy. It was like, Dude, I don't want bad guys coming back. Batman has a gun. He comes across the motherfucker. He shoots him. He throw, he puts him in the ground. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. There is no return. But after the overwhelming response from everybody needing to hear uh, back from the Joker, so, you know, Joker completes the Batman in that sense, because he really was just this, you know, pretty much a Charles Bronson wearing a bat mask, running around fucking death wishing the motherfuckers, and until you got the Joker, he put the seasoning on the shit. The thing I like about Batman is that he does have PTSD, 
and he really is just breaking the law. But he becomes so infrastructure within the system of Gotham. They depend on his ass, you know. And that's kind of a, a hook that has come across a lot of characters, obviously, over the years. It, they're dependent. It's a codependency thing, you know. Um, you know, Bob Kane was kind of just a rip-off artist, you know. I guess one time Bob Kane was hanging and out at a party with uh, Jack Kirby and a bunch of other guys or whatever, and uh, Bob Kane looked at uh, Jack Kirby and said, Hey, uh, what'd you create? You know, the Marvel Universe? He goes, guess what I created? Batman. <laughs> Just some cocky fucking shit. Picking on Jack, too, you know. Jack was already dealing with a lot, you know. It was funny to see ba uh, Batman drawn by Jack Kirby. Not that great. <laughs> bat ears off the side, you know, of his hat. All like, just bat wings coming off the side. Pretty, uh, pretty Jack Kirby in a lot of ways, but kind of just like, not really that great. I really got pissed off about that fucking Joker movie, man. Because, uh, I already believe that Bobby De Niro is behind Big Pharma. And he's behind the mutilation of people that are mentally ill. And I felt like that whole thing was had some hidden agenda behind it, like a lot of superhero movies do. Joker being the first like kind of movie that they're like, hey, it's a bad guy. But you feel too sorry for him, you know? I would have liked to have seen him just as he really was created, you know? This guy who was trying to take care of his wife. She's fucking knocked up with his baby. He's a failing comedian. He fucking uh, get, gets involved with the mob and they give him a red helmet to wear. And he gets scared. He doesn't know how to go against Batman. Batman's going to beat his ass. He does. He just pushes his ass right into a vat of chemicals. But on the movie... The Joker is on the talk show. If, fucking spoiler alert. I don't give a fuck if you've seen it or not. I'm going to spoil the fuck out of it. He's sitting in the uh, talk show host with Bobby De Niro being the talk show host. And they keep ripping off Scorsese too much, too, dude. I didn't like that shit either, man. It was like, quit ripping off blatant taxi driver... Quit ripping off blatant fucking king of comedy. But for the Joker to be like, kind of giving this excuse like, hey, I'm mentally ill and that's why I'm going to fucking do what I'm going to do right now. It almost kind of like subliminally targets mentally ill people in general because a lot of the things that they do discuss in there are truth where fucking, you know, Joker sitting in there talking to his doctor or whatever, and he's like, you know, you don't give a fuck, you know, what I'm really saying. And she's like, you know, nobody cares what people like us have to say at all. And, you know, 
for someone like Bobby De Niro to be, how come these guys have so much money and they can't give no money to fucking help appropriate systems like mental health systems, people who have PTSD, you know, never getting fucking help. Batman's got PTSD. <laughs> How's he? He doesn't go get help. <laughs> he puts on a fucking mask. <laughs> Originally, he shot motherfuckers and put them six feet under. <laughs> he killed the Joker originally, too. And, uh, but because people wanted him back, they brought him back. And now the Joker is a fucking sad-ass joke. Because that movie fucking sucks. It fucking sucks. And that's the story of Batman. Fucking PTSD yuppie. This black car will be rather <laughs> difficult to miss. And by the way, the gentleman is usually in quite a rush. We now return. Right on. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to correct myself in that Superman part. It was called Reign of the Superman, and it came out in 33, and it was written by Siegel and Schuster. So I don't need your nerdy ass fucking trying to school me, okay? Anyway, uh, sorry about that. I call this part The Price is Right because <laughs> it's about when I worked for uh, Mile High... And <laughs> the theme song's right. <laughs> Basically a story about Chuck Rosansky. Chuck Rosansky was a guy living in Denver, Colorado. And he was one of three comic book dealers in 1970 that got the call from an estate in Arvada that had three and a half acres of every comic book ever made, 10 to, 20 ep tw 10 to 20 copies of every comic book that ever came out. Now we're talking about the very first comic book, Animal Funnies. Guy <laughs> had 20 copies of this shit, you know? 20 copies of every comic book that ever came out between 1934 to 1956, 1957, and the guy dropped off. The guy was an old uh, silent star film guy, and <laughs> he was a comic book junkie, man. I mean, he collected it all, dude. And so, basically what happened was, he died... And his family wanted their basement to this mansion that they had. The, the basement was three and a half acres long, if you can imagine that. <laughs> the guy had it specifically built <laughs> to store his comics. 
they want to get rid of the fucking comics. So the story goes like this. They call up the first guy. The first guy they call is this guy who owns a comic book shop. He's still there to this day, as far as I know. He's in Denver. He runs a comic book shop called All in a Dream. And they call this guy, and he comes, and he shows up, and he sees <laughs> this gigantic multi-million dollar collection. The guy shits his pants. He starts spazzing out. The people get upset. They're like, dude, you're fired. He lost the whole fucking thing. Oh, no. They called up the second guy. <laughs> the second guy fucking, uh... He does the same thing. He spazzes out. So, they call up the third guy, Chuck Rosansky. Chuck Rosansky shows up, <laughs> and they give him the heads up. They're like, are you going to lose your shit like your other two colleagues did? And he kind of knows, he puts it together, and he knows he needs to fucking play it right. He puts on the poker face, and he tells him, I'll give you 50 cents a chicken crate to get this shit out of here. And they're like, deal. He pays 1500 bucks at 50 cents a chicken crate and moves three and a half acres of fucking comics that are worth fucking... You don't even know what they're fucking worth now. <clears throat> and he stores them in his one-bedroom apartment. Where he uh, decides, what am I going to do? So he stashes all of his comics inside of his apartment. He stays on his other friend's couch. He assesses them all. He puts it all together. He gets two partners in that I know of. One of them, his name is Wayne. He still owns a comic book shop called Time Warp in Boulder to this day. We've had an off and on relationship. I like the guy still. Even though he's... Whatever. It's <laughs> fucking Wayne. The other guy was Kent. And uh, he retired out and started a toy shop later on. And was an understudy of Forrest J. Ackerman, who was the guy who coined the term sci-fi. Basically, uh, I ended up working for Chuck Rosansky way later in the future, around 95. The only way I could get in was to do a 125 question aptitude test, I had to take 125 comics that came out over the years, put them in order, what issue they came in, and he said, you got 11 minutes. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, alright, so I put it together, I finished it in about 9 minutes, I missed two of them, I got the job, and I worked for Chuck for a while. And inside uh, this warehouse was pretty much the Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory warehouse. Holy shit, man. Fucking everything you ever dreamt of. He had book Nazis that would w walk around the place and they would make sure that you weren't reading. During the lunch break, you'd go into the lunchroom and it was all these shitty comics, man, like Web of Spider-Man or some crap that came out in Marvel Ladies that fucking sucked. Uh, and it didn't have a cover on it or nothing. <laughs> you were like, what the fuck, dude? So, you know, 
eventually I got busted reading a comic by one of his book Nazi henchmen named Fat Bill Daniels. You could smell this guy coming a mile away, man. Just fucking nacho cheese or I don't know what the fuck kind of perverted smell he had on his ass. Super nerd smell. He busted me reading. I had to go and uh, sit and talk to Chuck, you know, and Chuck was like, do you know why I hired you? I was like, because I did the questionnaire right. He goes, no, so I don't have to fucking deal with the comics. He's like, you know what, dude? I don't like comics. You know what I like? I like African art. I kind of sat there in shock for a while. About the all of two, two minutes, and I was like, all right, so can I get back to work? And he goes, don't fucking read on the job. <laughs> and that was my uh, Mile High story. Hope you fucking like that one. <laughs> anyway. Mile High Collection. Multi-million dollar goddamn collection. All about the heroes, right? Alright, let's get back to the heroes, man. <laughs> At one point, KISS was so fucking popular... Marvel decided to go ahead and target it at 7 to 11 year olds and make them superheroes. You know, uh, if you know Kiss, you know they're just singing about fucking sex all the fucking time and partying. But somehow they turned them into superheroes and that's what made them fucking great to me was that they had these medallions that gave them superpowers and shit. <laughs> so basically Hanna-Barbera licensed off from Marvel and took the idea and made Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, this mutilated-ass fucking made-for-TV movie that uh, ended up breaking the band up, even, because both Ace and Peter left during the filming of this monstrosity. It was just fucking horrible. So, uh, I found this little narration. I didn't write it, but I'm going to, like, uh, read it. And, uh, it goes along with the following music or whatever. So, this is the history of Kiss as fucking superheroes and the mess that it made. Okay, check this shit out. Attack of the Phantoms. <laughs> Fucking Gene Simmons. 1978 saw the first Kiss TV movie, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Fucking Peter Chris. This was at the height of their popularity. It became one of the highest rated TV movies of 1978. Fucking Ace Freely. The movie these days is considered a cult classic among his fans. Gene Simmons. Paul fucking Stanley. TV movie came about because someone came to us and said, there's an offer to make a film. And uh, it's for television. This is going to be like, a Hard Day's Night meets Star Wars. And we went, yeah, sounds really good. Kiss Meets the Phantom. Classic title, isn't it? 
and by that point, Peter Chris was not even in most of the of the uh, of the film. That's not his voice in the film at all, because he wouldn't show up to do looping, which is where you do your spots where the audio might have been um, not up to snuff, or maybe you couldn't hear something, so you go in and redo it. Peter wouldn't show up. Without them, no powers. We're just ordinary human beings. <laughs> Filming for the movie started on May 1978. It was produced by Hanna-Barbera. On May 19th, KISS performed a free concert at Magic Mountain, California. It was filmed for the inclusion in the movie. The band members had a difficult time with long waiting times. Common in movie making, especially Ace and Peter had were fucked up a lot, basically. Ace did not show up because he was fucked up a lot. He argued with these guys, so his African-American stuntman had to replace him. <laughs> Peter didn't even bother showing up to do his voiceovers. His voice was done by actor Michael Bell, who did Johnny Quest and a bunch of other shit. Much of the production was rushed, the script was rewritten multiple times, and the band had a crush, a crash course in acting. They didn't know what the fuck they were doing. It was a mess. I, for one, didn't even know how the story ended when we were filming it. Um, we would show up every day to film this thing, and before each take, you would yell out, line, and some guy standing on the side would feed you your line. If you said your line without blowing it, that was a take. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was getting close to the end by that point. And both Ace and Peter had decided they were going to leave the band. We had a meeting at, the, uh, at one of the trailers. And we, all, we told them, I did. I know my conscience is clear. I said, don't do it. You know, get yourself straight. You can have a solo career. You can do whatever the hell you want. Stay in the band. I hear you calling, <laughs> but I can't come home right now. Reportedly, this was the only time you hear Peter's real voice. It's an acoustic performance of Beth. Chris has defined the story as stating he did all the looping. <laughs> oh, sorry, Chris. The movie contains some fighting scenes. You can really tell when they use a stuntman scene they didn't look a bit like Kiss. <laughs> Obviously not fucking Kiss, man. <laughs> I 
A bunch of stunt scenes right here. Yeah, the story. Kiss had the same superpowers as they had in their 77 Kiss comic. Kiss had to stop the mad scientist Devereaux, who found a way of making humans into cyborgs. Eventually, Devereaux had made the Kiss evil Kiss clones and used the Kiss concert as a platform to control them. So the Evil Kiss clone concert band made an alternative version of Hotter Than Hell and called it Rip and Destroy. Audience that was there don't remember that shit. This performance is recorded after they left though. That's what happened. At the last day, Chris... Peter Chris got in a car accident. That's what happened. He wasn't even there. Kiss till this day does not talk about it. And if you work for Kiss and you talk about this shit, they'll fucking have your head cut off. <laughs> 2008 saw the DVD release of the movie re-release but they cut all of Ace's lines out pretty much and then this version has the alternate attack the name of Kiss and the attack of the Phantoms so you know whatever that was pretty much it dude pretty interesting shit I remember I wasn't allowed to like watch I wasn't allowed to listen to Kiss. I wasn't allowed to listen to him because it meant Knights and Satan service. But as soon as it was on TV and it was produced by Hanna-Barbera and they became superheroes, well, that fucking changed everything, didn't it? All right, on to the next fucking little shit show we're doing here. Oh, God, Jesus Christ, the world of heroes, right, man? Pretty interesting fucking coverage on this thing. But I'm going to end it by telling you one last little story here. So bear with me here. <laughs> In 1940, Jack Kirby was getting off work from drawing Captain America at Timely Comics. And to his dismay, he arrived into the parking lot and saw a teenage Stan Lee sprawled spread eagle on his fucking new jalopy car. Jack Kirby yelled at him and raged and threatened his life. <laughs> Basically 20 years later, Jack Kirby ended up working for Stan Lee. And in the first issue of Incredible Hulk number one, Bruce Banner, who's getting ready to test the gamma ray bomb, notices a young man laying spread eagle on a jalopy car in the middle of the gamma ray test field playing a harmonica. <laughs> well, 
Of course, Bruce Banner goes and saves the kid, throws him away to the side, and poor Bruce takes the belting of the Gamma Rays, inevitably becoming the Incredible Hulk. A rage, much like the rage Jack Kirby felt towards Stan Lee when his fucking punk ass was laying on his jalopy. You've been listening to Adam Air MD, GED. Be well. This episode was originally recorded April 13th, 2020. You've been listening to Adam Air MD, GED. Underground Cartoon Therapy.